You're listening to The Diplomat's podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm Ankit Panda from New York. And I'm Prashant Parmeswaran in Washington, D.C. Hi, Prashant. Thanks for joining me. It's good to have you back on the show. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, so we won't be doing North Korea this episode. We've been doing that a lot recently um, for, for a good reason. We did two episodes in a row. But uh, today, actually, uh, our listeners will be... Um, hopefully happy to know that we are going back to Southeast Asia. So um, ASEAN has been busy lately. We just saw a uh, leader summit in Manila where uh, President Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines presided over an interesting session to say the least. Um, and we'll, we'll get into why it was interesting. Specifically, a lot focuses on the South China Sea or rather ASEAN's lack of focus on the South China Sea in some ways. Um, and then, you know, the ASEAN foreign ministers met with U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, making it his first encounter with the ten, um, his 10 counterparts from the ASEAN member states in Washington, D.C. And Prashant, I understand that you've been on top of this today, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, a lot of stuff going on in D.C. the past week on, on U.S. ASEAN stuff and uh, a lot of ministerial attention here, so... Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we we both used to talk about how the Obama administration's pivot to Asia really, you know, um, if, you, if you even go back before the pivot to the signing of the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, it was really in some ways a pivot to Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia was in so many ways central to the Obama administration's Asia engagement. However, with the Trump administration, you know, we've seen this focus on Asia, right? Like, don't get me wrong, uh, Mattis, Tillerson, uh, even McMaster have all done high profile trips to the region. Um and, you know, Trump's been speaking to leaders, but there really seems to be an overemphasis on East Asia, which I think um, many observers have picked up on by this point. So, you know, in this context, Prashant, um, I do want to talk a bit about U.S.-ASEAN relations today, but why don't we start with um, the Leader Summit, which I think is an interesting place to kind of tell us where ASEAN is at as a, as a grouping today. Um, and then we'll move on to kind of what's going on between the U.S. and ASEAN. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Cool. So uh, do you want to tell us a bit about this leader summit? I mean, you know, you wrote this uh, great article um, about the South China Sea in the context of this latest summit, which was the 30th ASEAN summit in Manila. Um, and you said that to say that the summit was a little soft on China would be an understatement. Um, so uh, actually, a Philippine diplomat told you that it would be an understatement to say that the statement that came out was a little soft on China. So really, you know, what happened? Um, what's going on? And where does ASEAN stand vis-a-vis -vis China right now? Yeah, so, so just to provide a little bit of context, it's uh, it's a big year for ASEAN. It's the 50th anniversary um, for the organization since its founding uh, in, back in 1967. So there's a lot of uh, commemoration, a lot of uh, anniversaries uh, and, and sort of engagement going on in that sense. Um, and the, the ASEAN statement uh, that was issued, um, you know, it, it usually these statements are quite long. Um, quite uh, a dull documents, to be honest, very bureaucratic in nature. They cover everything from, you know, sort of the three pillars of, of ASEAN. Some of them cover security issues, others economic issues, people to people, cultural interactions, educational exchanges. So a lot of issues discussed that actually don't make uh, the headlines. But I think the, the major uh, takeaway um, uh, from, from most of the media commentary on the South China Sea question, which is what understandably most people were focusing on, um, was the fact that um, the the statement, the chairman statement issued by Duterte, um, the Philippines is chairing ASEAN this year. That's why it's being held in Manila. Um, that statement uh, basically included almost no criticism uh, of China at all, and and it's 
actions in the South China Sea. Um, usually, um, when other countries have chaired ASEAN, you know, Laos has chaired it, uh, Myanmar has chaired it in recent years, um, there has been some uh, muted criticism of Chinese behavior, sometimes not mentioning China, but actions like reclamation, militarization, concern about uh, deterioration and confidence, these are all things that are usually included in the statement. Um, and the fact that they weren't included, you know, led observers to understandably conclude that um, Duterte um, and the Philippines under his watch um, is basically not going to take China to task uh, publicly on the South China Sea issue because Duterte is engaged in uh, his own embrace of China and kind of a rapprochement after uh, some troubling times for Sino-Philippine relations under his predecessor, Benino Aquino. Um, and so that's sort of the, the, the general sense coming out from the meeting, and I think it's, it's very hard to disagree right. uh, with that notion given, uh, given what happened. I mean, the statement was, uh, by, by any stretch of the imagination, you know, one of the weakest that we've seen in, in recent years. And the fact that this is coming from the Philippines, which, you know, as we've discussed before on this podcast, is, is by far the most forward-leaning uh, claimant in the South China Sea in terms of getting regional and international attention on the South China Sea, the fact that the Philippines is doing this um, obviously is a very striking uh, comparison. Right. A year ago, if you told me this, I'd been very surprised. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of change in international politics in the scope of a year, but certainly, uh, you know, in the South China Sea, I think Duterte's uh, rapprochement with China has been quite significant. But, you know, Prashant, I mean, you also note in your piece that we've seen ASEAN stumble before um, over the South China Sea issue. There was the confused matter of the communique after last year's ministerial meeting in China and the China-ASEAN meeting. Um, but, you know, more spectacularly, there was the 2012 Cambodia summit, which everybody points to as uh, the defining moment of ASEAN kind of demonstrating the gap between the so-called laggards on the South China Sea issue like Cambodia, Laos, uh, and other states, um, and the forward-leading claimants, uh, which Philippines was once the uh, leader of. Uh, so, you know, like when you um, when you look back on all the times that ASEAN has kind of failed to kind of really get together um, around the South China Sea issue, I mean, where would you rank um, what we just saw at the at the Manila summit? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, uh, it's it's definitely a fair point. Um, we've, we've both talked about this before. Um, you know, ASEAN is only one means through which Southeast Asian states express their interests in the South China Sea question. A lot of the action is bilateral and sometimes with their partners, whether it's the U.S., Japan, and, and, and other countries. So um, ASEAN you know, is a multilateral forum that is restricted to kind of just diplomatic management of the South China Sea situation. So, um, you know, not a lot of people put a lot of stock into what ASEAN does on the South China Sea necessarily. Um, and you're right, there have been a number of instances where ASEAN has stumbled. Um, but I would say, you know, the fact that um, it's it's partly due to um, expectations and the countries in question. You'd expect ahead of time that, uh, you know, Cambodia might not take a strong position on the South China Sea, um, or Laos or Myanmar might waver a little bit. Um, but as you pointed out as well, I mean, if you were to take what the Philippines' position was even a year or two or three years ago, the fact that we're seeing the Philippines come here and, and, and do this um, is quite significant. So that's the thing that's the most striking, particularly since, you know, some of the language that we've talked about in the South China Sea disputes, you know, Philippine diplomats were the ones who uh, advocated very strongly for the insertion of these clauses when other so-called laggards, as you pointed out, were resisting that. Uh, and now these diplomats, um, you know, have to, you know, quite sadly watch as uh, their new president uh, 
doesn't include some of this language and refuses to include the language that they themselves had to advocate for. So I think that's that's really the depressing thing about um, ASEAN from, from the Philippine perspective, at least. Right. I'm sure some of those Filipino diplomats can find some sympathetic ears in Foggy Bottom in D.C. too, you know? <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the other question I wanted to ask you, um, just the last thing on the South China Sea matter, is, you know, I mean, China's been... Um, also acting recently, right? I mean, we've seen um, at least the hints of progress. You know, I'm, I'm very worried about talking about the South China Sea Code of Conduct because I know better, uh, given, you know, how long we've been looking at this document trying to kind of come out from the China ASEAN processes. But as of late, you know, they've kind of come to an agreement on a framework towards an agreement. Um, so there is like some progress happening on this front. But what's your sense? You know, I mean, do you think this uh, code of conduct push that's going on right now is going to lead somewhere? Um, and is that partly due to this better state of relations between China and the Philippines? Yeah, I mean, as, as you pointed out, I mean, we've been talking about this code of conduct um, for a long time. In fact, uh, you know, initially when ASEAN and, and China concluded a, a declaration on the code of conduct back in 2002, that was because they were compromising and they couldn't agree on an actual code of conduct that was binding in any way. So they adopted a non-binding document. Um, so we've been going at this for, for, for decades. Um, and my sense is that um, we're not going to see uh, any major document of consequence being adopted, even if the Chinese um, were to agree to what they're calling still a framework to govern the code of conduct, not necessarily a code of conduct. I think uh, to the extent that we get anything, it will be a statement of general principles rather than something that um, has real teeth. Um, and I guess, you know, even if something is adopted, uh, China's behavior in the South China Sea has been, you know, not changing significantly, and um, I, I would argue, um, and I think most people would agree, um, if Duterte um, and the Philippines, which was the most forward-leaning claimant in the South China Sea, can flip so dramatically um, after the Chinese um, have uh, done so much uh, to the Philippines in terms of assertive behavior, everything from harassing their fishermen to um, sort of intruding on their waters, um, I think the Chinese, uh, and particularly more hawkish voices in China, would conclude, well, we can sort of absorb the costs in the short term and try to play ASEAN along on this code of conduct while consolidating our own military position in the South China Sea, and soon we'll turn it into a Chinese lake anyway. So such that even if we adopt a code of conduct in the next year or two or three, um, it will be actually be quite meaningless because the military balance in the South China Sea would have turned so far more uh, in China's favor that um, it wouldn't actually matter what's on paper because what's on the ground would have changed so dramatically. So I think that's sort of where the Chinese is. I, I wouldn't rule out um, some kind of document uh, coming out. Um, it would make sense for China uh, to, in the next few years, at least try to continue to uh, throw out a line to ASEAN on, on the code of conduct so as to prevent the criticism that all they're doing is being militarily assertive. But I don't sense that this is something that the Chinese are seriously considering in terms of a change in their South China Sea approach. If anything, Duterte has proved uh, that China's South China Sea approach is actually working. Right. No, it is working. And I think um, I think your analysis is spot on here. Um, and especially if you look at, you know, China's 
kind of revisions to its own maritime laws that it intends to eventually apply to the South China Sea. I mean, Beijing is taking its time to, you know, um, consolidate what it's already claimed. And also, you know, it helps the fact that the United States is so distracted right now by the North Korea issue in particular. I mean, we just saw reporting um, saying that, you know, PACOM's request for additional freedom of navigation operations have been uh, routinely declined. Uh, China's having a good year, um, and certainly, you know, not the year um, many of us had hoped for after the July 12th um, ruling last year in The Hague, right? I mean, you have this ruling, the whole South China Sea issue you think has reached kind of an apotheosis where things are starting, you know, from there on, China would begin to suffer reputational costs and have to deal with the implications of that ruling, but instead things have gone rather well for Beijing, um, partly due to the outcome of the U.S. election and the administration's uh, the new administration's decision, but also uh, because of you know domestic politics in the Philippines, as we've discussed uh, regularly on this podcast before. Um, Prashant, so with that, I guess uh, let's you know move on to ASEAN-US relations, which I guess is um, more timely as we record this podcast. As uh, um, as I said at the intro, you know um, all ten ASEAN foreign ministers are uh, in DC to meet with their US counterpart Rex Tillerson for the first time. And, you know, so um, ASEAN, like I said, I mean, um, you know, I'd actually love to get your take on this. I mean, do you think um, looking at the Trump administration's uh, approach to Asia that uh, this is really a Southeast Asia second administration really focused on East Asia first? Yeah, so I think uh, there definitely is uh, a concern that relative to the Obama administration that, um, as we talked about earlier, has prioritized Southeast Asia much more than previous administrations, that we are going back to a pattern where it's going to be Northeast Asia first, particularly with all the attention on China and particularly North Korea. Um, you know, that being said, I, I think that if you look at any number of challenges that the Trump administration will have to deal with, whether it's you know maritime security, South China Sea, Islamic State, terrorism, these challenges will require Southeast Asian states. Um, I think ultimately, though, while I see the Obama administration and several of the officials there as being multilateralists at heart um, and being very committed to attending these summits and meetings regularly, uh, I'm, it's, I think it's too early to say whether the Trump administration um, is like that to the same degree. Um, and I think we will see some prioritization of certain partners over others. And if there is a loss of momentum, the countries that will feel it will be the countries that are less relevant to some of these big strategic challenges that we're talking about. Yeah, so Prashant, you know, you wrote this article um, earlier arguing that it was a a good thing and an urgent necessity for Trump to go to these summits later this year, including APEC and the uh, ASEAN summits. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's been a topic of debate. Um, I've seen some contrary opinions saying that it could actually be destabilizing to the overall institutionalized relationships. Do you want to maybe, you know, go into your thinking about why you think it'd be a good thing for Trump to um, show up at those summits later this year? And he said he will go there, so uh, it looks like it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when when he said that, it was, it was a pretty uh, welcome signal. Um, it it's sort of unusual for an administration to announce this early in the year that they're confirming attendance at meetings, uh, particularly because previously there's been a number of times, you know, Obama uh, missed uh, one meeting, um, Clinton missed one as well. So and it often happens because of domestic politics. So it really is quite a big commitment coming from the U.S. side under Trump. Um, it's a good thing because this is no ordinary year for U.S. ASEAN relations or U.S. policy. It's obviously the the first year that Trump's in office, so it's it's good to sort of set 
a clear signal about the importance of Southeast Asia, but it's also you know, the 50th anniversary of ASEAN, the 40th anniversary of U.S.-ASEAN relations. So if Trump were, were not to have gone for the summit, um, it wouldn't have sent a very good signal in that sense. It also uh, gives him a chance to, you know, to set the parameters of the U.S.-ASEAN relationship. I mean, if he truly believes that the U.S.-ASEAN uh, relationship or U.S.-Southeast Asia relations um, has been quite one-sided, and, South, and the U.S. has done a lot for Southeast Asia, and Southeast Asia done hasn't done enough for the United States, he should go there and say it, um, and you know, spend the time and take the initiative to go there and make the argument. And I think it will be more effective that way. Right. So let's uh, let's go back to this idea of the Northeast Asia first approach. So when Tillerson talked to the ministers, um, you know, uh, the readouts that we saw, there was no official State Department briefing. Uh, you know, I understand that, you know, you spend some time with people close to the summits. Um, but, you know, North Korea uh, is sort of an obsession on the part of this administration. You know, very early on, even in the transition, Trump was famous for not taking an interest in any intelligence briefings, but he reportedly had requested a couple at least on North Korea. And, you know, we saw this major policy review. And right now it seems like the administration is really doubling down on what it's called maximum pressure towards North mm-hmm. Korea. And it seems like it's fully, you know, enlisting uh, all 10 ASEAN members to uh, try and cut North Korea off. And, you know, to be fair, you know, I mean, there were some reactions on Twitter, for example, when Ryan Priebus said that uh, the invitation to Duterte to visit um, Washington, D.C. was justified because the U.S. needs to tamp down on North Korea. And, you know, there are limits to that. But obviously, you know, there are real ties between North Korea and Southeast Asia. For example, last year, there was a major uh, cyber breach at the Central Bank of Bangladesh, and that money was mm-hmm. actually, um, you know, f- um, laundered through the Philippines, uh, leading to yep. a Bangladeshi delegation going there. But, you know, more significantly, just the recent uh, assassination attempt, you know, Kuala Lumpur International Airport is the 24th busiest airport in the world. North Korea used weapons of mass destruction there to uh, kill Kim Jong-un's um, older older half-brother um so there are these uh, connections that i think people sometimes forget about and if i'm if i'm correct you know uh, i think i saw on twitter uh that the last time asean mentioned north korea in a joint document i mean they have made statements after missile launches and stuff but last time it was mentioned in a joint document or a joint statement north korea was uh way back in 2011 um so it 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 seems like it's been a while so you know what's your take on all this business with uh, north korea and asean do you think it's a productive area for the united states to focus on right now yeah, I mean, I, it, it's a good question. I, I think the the United States has been pressuring a number of Southeast Asian countries for, for years now um, to crack down and, and to reduce the extent of their relationship with North Korea, you know, including closing of the embassies. Um, you talked about financial transactions, which is a really important component, but also um, proliferation concerns. Uh, the Bush administration with the Proliferation Security Initiative um, and thereafter, Malaysia has been an important uh, actor and player in terms of toughening some of its regulations in that domain too. So this has been going on for a while. It's nothing new. Um, I, you know, I, I don't doubt that North Korea was discussed um, in in the actual meetings. Um, that being said, I also think that there's a little bit of a dynamic where you know the State Department did um, they didn't do like sort of their their regular day long briefing, but they did do um, a short session with some reporters. Um, and if you look at um, you know what the questions were, um, it's you know the predictable dynamic where reporters will kind of latch on to um, the sort of challenge of the day, and it happened to be North Korea. And so most of the questions were on North Korea. There wasn't anything else that major. Uh, in terms of a significant story that was coming out of that uh, briefing, as far as I can tell, having read it. Um, and 
you know, I, I think that's what created the dynamic that sort of, you know, the, this U.S. ASEAN meeting was all about North Korea and the U.S. kind of pressuring uh, Southeast Asian states when in, in effect, as correctly pointed out, this has been going on for a long time. Also, the, the other secondary point um, that you sort of alluded to, which is how if, how much of a worthy effort is it to pressure ASEAN states? I, I don't think it's very, it's very worthwhile. Um, you know, the Southeast Asian states maintain these links with North Korea out of various considerations, you know, diplomatic, cultural links, economic links. Um, and, you know, they've proven that they want to keep this going on. And um, if the Malaysia episode shows us anything, is that these countries um, will make their own determination with respect to what to do in North Korea. And if they're about to tighten or reduce their relations with uh, North Korea. The North Koreans are doing a pretty good job of, you know, themselves of uh, making Southeast Asians think twice about doing that. So uh, I, I don't think the United States need to, needs to lean too heavily on ASEAN countries for that to happen. Right. And it could lead to resentment depending on the tone that's taken, you know. I mean, uh, it, it seemed to me, at least reading the reports, um, and I actually very quickly glanced at that briefing and some of the answers, you know, it seemed like the U.S. was very didactic in some ways at this meeting with yep. Tillerson on North Korea, on even South China Sea. I mean, Tillerson told um, all the other claimant states to not, you know, not engage in reclamation efforts when the Trump administration really hasn't sent that message to China directly. And, you know, I mean, part of me is concerned about how this might be read. You know, if the U.S. continues to harp on this and uh, really emphasize to Southeast Asian states that, look, you need to, like, end your diplomatic ties, clamp down on North Korea, um, you know, that's a that's an area where resentment is really easy to build up. I mean, it, it, it's, it's their... It's their sovereign right at the end of the day to, um, you know, have diplomatic ties if they see it fit. I mean, obviously, they are obligated to comply with U.N. Security Council resolutions, which is a separate issue, and, you know, submit their notifications mm -hmm. for how they're implementing sanctions and all that. But that's not something that really the United States will be taking a lead on, right? That'll be something um, occurring in a larger kind of multilateral forum. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I think I agree with you that this is probably not the best place to... Um, build the U.S. ASEAN relationship, at least. And it seemed like just a lot of the other issues that, you know, we talked about with the launch of the ASEAN community, um, everything that the Sunnyland Summit kind of signaled about the state of U.S. ASEAN ties, a lot of that just kind of didn't really uh, make a major appearance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, they definitely factored into the discussions because the, the discussions, you know, the U.S. ASEAN dialogue, they go into painful details about all the bureaucratic procedures um, and each line item in the in the sort of big U.S. ASEAN strategic partnership. But in terms of what the reporters um, will pick up on, uh, you know, North Korea is kind of the issue of the day. And I think it you're, you're right to point out the messaging because it gets to the broader point in the U.S. ASEAN relationship. You know, the, the, the U.S. wants Southeast Asian countries to play a bigger role in, in these sort of big global and regional challenges. Um, and the fact is uh, ASEAN struggles with some of these challenges, you know, whether it, not just North Korea, but, you know, we talked about the statement on the South China Sea as another example. So this is kind of uh, a dynamic that continues to play out. And, um, you know, it, it, if it's not managed correctly, it does create some resentment on either or both sides. Right. Well, I think we'll, um, I think we'll wrap it up there for today. Um, unless you have yeah, anything else good. to add. Yeah, sounds good. Great. Well, um, thanks for our listeners for uh, listening to the podcast again. And as always, do leave us a rating on iTunes if you haven't done that yet. And also leave us a review. It, uh, it really helps the podcast gain um, a larger base of support. And if you're uh, interested in hearing something on the show that you haven't heard yet, um, just leave either of us a message on either Twitter or email. Thanks a lot for listening.